0: Y'all sound good. That was awesome. Great to uh, praise the Lord with you. I, I need to confess, I, I don't know if it's a sin. When, when Joe asked us, you know, how many of us knew, had heard about slits? I have, but I didn't want to admit it. So I didn't raise my hand. Uh, matter of fact, I think it was because I tasted it, that it took all of my gusto... For drink for the next forty years, i you know it just it really messed my life up <clears throat> all right this morning let's let 's depend uh, let 's pretend that you're my class and i 've come in i 'm going to give you an essay question okay, and you 've got to do about one or two pages answer six hundred words. fill in the blank and then write your essay about your answer. The blank is the glory of Blank. So you fill in the blank, and then you obviously going to pick something to go in that blank that you can write about 600 words on, okay? So the glory of... Yeah, Yeah, what are you going to put in that blank? Don't jump the gun on me now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you can put Christ in there. Uh, But, you know, after last night, you might want to say the glory of football the glory of the Tigers, the glory of the Gamecocks. Well, neither won so much last night. You know, but they're all right. How about the glory of love? The glory of love between a man and a woman. One man and one woman. The glory of America. The glory of hunting, fishing. I mean, you can put anything in there to write a good essay, but I wonder you know, really, how many of us would put the glory of Christ or the glory of Jesus? And if we answered that or the glory of God, if we answered the question that way or the fill in the blank that way, what would we say for 600 words? Uh, and, and to really think through what is the glory of Christ I want us to think about that attribute of God this morning, and I've chosen for John chapter 2, because if you look down at John 2, verse 11, here's the build up and climax of this story about Jesus turning water into wine. Verse 11, this beginning of his signs, in other words, this is his first public miracle, turning water into wine. So this is the beginning of his signs. Jesus did it in Cana of Galilee. And catch this phrase, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So there's something about the wedding of Cana that manifests the glory of Christ. And he chose this particular miracle for that purpose. And it had immediate results. Of his disciples. Believing in him. Now when we look at this passage. Many times. We don't get the glory. Of the wedding of Cana. Now if I told you. you know, Jesus first miracle was turning water into wine. At, at a wedding in Cana. And you said. Yeah I know that passage. That passage is about the glory of Christ. Then I would say Okay you get it. But if you say no that passage is about Jesus turning water into wine it's like not really. It's about the glory of Christ. A lot of us know the story, but do we know the glory of Christ? In trying to to bring that attribute to to you this morning, I thought well, we've got to deal with this Christian and alcohol subject. Because to me, that subject for the last 150 years has obscured the glory of Christ. We're missing it in this passage. Uh, matter of fact, uh, one of the uh, I typically, when I turn on my computer, I look at Gospel Coalition site and see what the the religious leaders are saying there. Then maybe the Christian Post, and then church leader. Church leaders is a is is a fairly um, good sight, but they always have a sidebar that that says, and they've had it for, I don't know, at least eight or nine months, it's the first thing I, I see in it, the, the sidebar is can a Christian drink alcohol, and I'm thinking, really, you got to say that to me every morning for eight months, you know, at some point I just, you're missing it, if you think that needs to be on your home page, that needs to be the first thing people see over and over and over, So I want us to just deal with it and quit obscuring the glory and then get to the glory of this passage. So I've, I wrote it out on your handout so that I wouldn't have to spend as much time on it. But you know the story. Jesus turns water into wine. First point about alcohol I want you to see. Turning water into wine does not water down the offensiveness of drunkenness. Drunkenness is sin. Just because Jesus turns water into wine doesn't mean... He's done away with sin. He did not. And drunkenness is still sin. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 6, that'd be one passage I'd turn to uh, quickly. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, um, I think it's about verse 9 and 10, talks about, yes, yeah, verse 9 says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he starts listing sins. Verse um, 10 no thieves, no covetous, no drunkards. Drunkenness is, is in this list of sins that keep people from heaven. So this is a serious offense. Uh, how about another passage? 1 Peter chapter 4 um, talks about our lifestyle. Verse 3, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the gentiles having pursued a course of sensuality lust drunkenness carousing drinking parties jesus was when he turned water into wine he was not creating a drinking party he was not creating drunkenness he says in his words he says time is past for that you did that when you were non-christian that's not what we do turning water into wine is not promoting Drunkenness. It's not promoting the drinking party. Um, if you produce alcohol, if you sell alcohol, if you drink alcohol, you're like Jesus. That doesn't mean you're forcing people into drunkenness or into drinking parties or into carousing. Jesus produced the alcohol. He made the alcohol. He created the alcohol. He lavishly gave alcohol away. He did not water down the offensiveness of drunkenness. His job is not to keep people out of hell. I mean to keep people out of heaven into hell. My wife sometimes says to me, that's just so funny. She said, you know, you told people they needed to believe in Jesus to go to hell. I said, I didn't say that, did I? I just did, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I met, sometimes I mess up. Uh, but anyway... Let's move on. Uh, and also, let me just say real quickly, Jesus doesn't encourage us to be um, l- non-submissive to our government. If you're, 20, if you're under 21, it's, a, it's illegal for you to drink alcohol in this country. Be submissive to your government. Romans uh, 13 deals with that. Um, So we're not encouraging drunkenness. Jesus is not encouraging either. Number two, turning water into wine reveals the possession of or consumption of alcohol is not a sin and should not be called such. Jesus possessed it. Jesus consumed it. And Jesus is sinless. He was sinless. He is sinless. He will always be sinless. He made it. He served it. Served it. He drank it. He was accused of being a drunkard. But he drank without sin. Um, it would have been easy for him to have made a rule and said, Okay, look, uh, I, I hear you need some more wine. One, one glass is enough. Uh, we're done here. Uh, and not turned water into wine. Jesus doesn't do that. He creates wine for our enjoyment. There is no shame in the example of christ so if you make the possession or the consumption of alcohol a sin you're shaming christ you're calling christ a sinner and he's not he is sinless in all he does and he makes no rules um to condemn others for their drinking neither should we number three turning water into wine reveals that the right way to deal with the abuse of alcohol is not by abstinence or legalism Um, you know, Jesus didn't make the one-glass rule here. When they ran out of wine, you assumed the planners for this wedding, they planned on at least one glass for the, each of the wedding party. So at minimum, they've already drunk one, and Jesus didn't say, well, one's enough. He doesn't make that rule. He doesn't go the legalistic route, and he doesn't go the abstinence route. Um, what's, the, what's the antidote to too much drinking. The antidote is to be filled with the Spirit. Jesus gives us that. Look over in Ephesians 5. Um, Ephesians 5 says, uh, verse 18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The antidote to drinking too much is more of Christ. Being filled with his spirit. Because the spirit is a spirit of control. The spirit gives us the ability to drink and eat with control, not to lose um, control. So, turning water into wine reveals the right way is not uh, abstinence, it's not legalism. Uh, matter of fact, legalism is, is a greater sin than drunkenness, in my estimation, because of where it leads you. Uh, making rules uh, about consumption because those who drink too much and become drunk, they get to a place of loneliness and desperation and despair, and they look up to Christ. But the legalist never gets there. The one who's obeyed the rules is is somebody who says, "I've done it. You know, I've mastered it. Well, look at me." And they exalt themselves. And if you exalt yourself, you get to the place where you feel like you don't need anybody, not even Christ. That's a horrendous place to be, is to buy into that whole legalism mindset that promotes a human righteousness or a self-righteousness. Number four, turning water into wine is consistent with the weaker brother passages in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, since they do not require or teach abstinence. Look at the Romans 14 passage. Um, Real quick, Romans 14, verse 14, says, I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Verse 20, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. But they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. So he says alcohol, food, drink, they're clean. They're gifts of God. They've been created by God. They're not intrinsically evil. Um, What's going on in that passage is people have, um, they're going against their conscience or they're being pushed to go against their conscience. They're being lured, they're being pressed, they're being forced to go against their conscience. So many times people tell me, well, the reason I don't drink is because I don't want to cause people to stumble. I say, well, I sure hope you don't cause people to stumble because causing people to stumble, as defined by Scripture, is luring people into sin. Is that a problem with you? Do you you like luring people into sin? Do you you want to mess up people's lives? No, 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 I, I wouldn't want to do that. Well, then you're not doing it. I mean, a lot of times we think we're pressing or we're causing people to sin because we drink publicly. Jesus drank publicly. And he didn't cause anybody to stumble. The scribes and Pharisees were very annoyed with Jesus when he drank. But Jesus never caused them to stumble. And he never quit. He never totally abstained uh, to, to, to help them out of being irritated and annoyed, Uh, none of them come and say, you know, you caused me to sin, because he didn't. He was consistent uh, in seeing drink and food as something that is clean, and it's not going to ruin us, it's not going to make us evil, uh, and we're not, we shouldn't press it upon, we shouldn't press that or anything upon someone else. As to help or encourage them to go against their conscience. They didn't want to drink, fine. But Jesus didn't encourage and demand or press others to, to drink against their conscience. Number five, turning water into wine teaches us to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. What does God hate? What does God love? He, he, loves, he loves us enjoying his gifts. He loves giving to us, but he hates us abusing the gifts. He's given us this Bible. He's given us the word, but he says, I hate it when you take away from it or when you add to it. See, that would be an abuse. It's a good gift, but use it rightly. He's given us our bodies, and he says, I want you to use them, but if you exalt yourself, you're... you're, Talk about your strength and your abilities all the time. You're abusing the very gift I gave you. He gave us food, but He hates when we abuse it and become gluttons. He gives us money, but He hates it when we abuse it and become greedy and we're not generous and we don't use it as a tool for tithing and worship. He gave us sex, but He hates when we abuse the gift and commit rape, or adultery, or fornication. See, there's all sorts of gifts. He gives us wine. He says, but I hate it when you abuse it and become drunk. It's not the gifts that God hates. It's the abuse of the gifts. He loves freedom within boundaries. He hates boundaries without freedom. Turning water to wine helps us to see what God loves, what God hates. And if we could get that, I think we would understand more of the glory of Christ. Well, let's, let's jump to the glory of Christ. Let's, let's move beyond that whole sub- subject. I, I don't want to have the subject with you later today about alcohol, okay? I've already given you my answer. I don't want to preach on John 2... And the discussion around the dinner table today is alcohol. Done, okay? The passage is about the glory of Christ. So let's look at it and let's think about the glory of Christ. Let's begin to to observe what's going on here. Let me go through the passage. John 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Okay. Third day. Jesus has come out of the wilderness 40 days, 40 nights. He's entering into the third day of his ministry. he's been baptized, he's been anointed. Third he's he's gathered a few disciples and it's now time to show them some things. He's it's also time to show that he is worthy of followership. He comes to the this wedding at the in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Verse 2, and both Jesus and his disciples were inviting to the, invited to the wedding. They are not wedding crashers. Okay? They have been invited. This is a planned event. Not just Jesus, but Jesus and his disciples have been asked to come. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. That's all she says. She didn't say, please help. She doesn't say, I don't know what I'm going to do. She doesn't seem frustrated. She doesn't repeat the matter. She just makes a statement to Jesus. They have no wine. I mean, I could think if I were the wedding director, it's like, good grief. It's the only thing I wasn't in charge of. Surely they would have had enough wine. But they don't. They have run out of wine. And you know the story. We get further on. They actually have a head waiter who tests the wine and distributes the wine. So we had enough for him. We had enough for him to distribute. But now they've run out. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, interesting phraseology there. Jesus said to her, woman, this is when he stops calling her mother, begins calling her woman. His authority has changed since he was anointed priest, since his baptism, since he's begun this earthly ministry. He's now no longer acting as the son of Joseph and Mary. He's now making it clear his authority is from God. And no one else. And they, he also reinforces that by saying, My hour's not come, uh, basically meaning, you know, I'll serve no wine before it's time. Yes. But I'm on God's clock, not your clock. I'm on God's time schedule. And what I do, I do under the under my authority, God's authority, on the schedule of God. And we all have to realize at times that God's not on our schedule. He has his own schedule. And he makes that clear. It's my authority. It's my schedule. That doesn't seem to bother Mary. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Hmm. So she's already gotten the idea that he's going to do something. And how does she know that? She's obviously... Probably the wedding director because the servants obey her commands. She's the one most concerned about being out of wine. She says, well, that tests the servants, you know, follow, follow Jesus around. Whatever he says to do, just do it. Well, you know, I got thinking about that. Um, what's he going to do? She, she, she's convinced he's going to do something. How is she, why is she convinced? She has lived with him for 30 years. There's an impossible situation. And as you stop to think about that impossible situation, remember the, when she was introduced to Jesus the first time, when Gabriel came out of heaven and showed up at her door in Luke chapter 1, you know, the Christmas story, and basically knocked and said, Hey, Mary, oh favored one. And she's like, looking around, you you talking to me? It's like, nobody's ever called me that. Nobody's ever addressed me that way. And Gabriel says, yeah, God sent me a message. You're going to have a baby, and you're going to have a baby while still a virgin. And her answer to that is, impossible never happens never has never will that's impossible and what was gabriel's response impossible with man with god all things are possible so the first time she met jesus bam right there in her womb starting to grow she's been in, she's been told you are now with child impossible no nope. It just happened because God makes all things possible. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus or watching him grow up? He's the problem solver. There is nothing that is impossible with God. That would be so cool. Anything that happens at home, Jesus can just say, got this, got this. Not a problem. It's never been a problem. Things we think are impossible become possible because of Christ. So she's she's very content to say, "Jesus, we have no wine. Just walk off." She may have done that a hundred times, not just about wine, about anything. This is my problem. Stop and ask yourself when when's the last time you just went to Jesus and said, "Jesus, we don't have enough." we're just out. Thank you. Just wanted you to know. That's it. We perhaps we don't we don't catch the glory of a God who wants to serve, who cares when we don't have enough. Well, it goes on. Verse 6. Now there were 6 stone Water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. They sprinkled so many things. We don't have time. If you looked in Hebrews nine, all the things they used to sprinkle, they called them various baptisms. How they would sprinkle things. These pots were there for for dip for the priest to dip his hand in or hyssop branch in and to sprinkle and cleanse things. So it's pure water. Six stone water pots are set there for purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. So they're not full. They will hold 30 gallons. Some had maybe 20, some somewhere between 20 and 30. He says, Fill them all up. So you got six pots now filled to the brim with 30 gallons. Jesus. Uh, so they filled them to the brim. Verse 8, And he said to them, Draw some of it out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter... Test, tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from but the servants who had drawn the water knew the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him every man serves the good wine first when the people have drunk freely then he serves the poorer wine but you kept the good wine until now in the story this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Um, six pots, thirty gallons, a hundred and eighty gallons of wine. From water to wine. What do we know about the wedding in Cana? You know, I have been to weddings without any of my family, officiated weddings, come home, and somebody in my family says, you know, how was the wedding? Well, it was good. What do they want to know? I mean, whose wedding was it? In the wedding of Cana, what do you know? I mean, could you answer the questions I'm going to get? I can't. Whose wedding was it? I don't know. Well, who was the bride? Don't know. Who was the groom? Don't know. Who were the families? Don't know. Who was the real director? Not really sure. Maybe Mary. What did they have to eat? Don't know if they ate anything at all. I mean, what was the color of the bridesmaid's dresses, for crying out loud? You've got to know that. Don't know. What do you know about the wedding of Cana? Well, I know Jesus turned water into wine. That's all I know. See, the point is not the wedding at Cana. The point is Jesus manifesting his glory. They don't tell us any other point. God wants us to see the glory of Christ... In this passage, what do we see about this glory? He turned water into wine, turned 180 gallons of water into 180 gallons of quality wine. This testified it's definitely alcohol, it's definitely the best the head waiter had drunk. He says it's not the poor stuff. This is this is fine wine. Matter of fact, you know. I won't go there. Never mind. Yeah, I will. Okay. Now I got you confused. Uh, Grapes naturally ferment. It wasn't until Thomas Welch in 1869, after the pasteurization of milk, he said, you know, we could take that process of pasteurization and we could use it to stop grapes from fermenting and becoming wine. And so he stopped God's natural process, and invented Welch's grape juice, and then he marketed it at all to churches that that would be the best they could use. Well, it's not the good stuff. The good stuff is what Jesus does with grapes here. He does it with waters here, water here, skips the whole fermentation process, and just creates wine. Well. It says when they saw that, manifested his glory, his disciples believed in him. What does that mean? Uh, created faith? I think they already had faith. We'd have to go back to John chapter 1 and we begin to see. I think they've already converted. But here it says they believed. I think it's more of an indication their faith is strengthened. Their faith is built up. Their faith is is, is, is more real. It's, it's, it's owning. We, we knew you were significant. We knew you were the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, John 1. But now in John 2, we, we own it. We take it in more deeply. How do we own the glory? Have we seen the glory of God? Well, I want you to see four things here in this passage. First of all, the glory of Christ's supernatural assistance. Mary knew it. That's why I spent a little time on Mary. She knew that he is my helper. He is my rock. He is my strength. He is my defense. He is the one who solves my problems like we saw last week in Psalm 46. Though the mountains crash into the heart of the sea, Christ never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's my help and my strength, my fortress. I will never be moved. She didn't have to plead with him. She didn't have to make multiple requests. I got a problem. We don't have enough. Jesus is the one who personally, supernaturally, assist us over and over and over. And we need to see the glory of that that we have a God who cares about our particular needs. Even the lack of wine matters to him. Now, he might not be on your schedule or mine, but he's still with us to assist us and to care for us, our daily needs. Do we share our daily needs? I mean, we, we believe Jesus will save us and take us to heaven. Save us from our sins, take us to heaven. Do we also believe he will help us if there's no food on our table or there's no drink in the fridge, that he'll help us with our marriages, that he'll help us with our computer temptations, that he'll give us a spirit of control, that he'll help us train up our children that he'll help us find a job Mary seemed to already have the habit of saying Jesus this is the situation today she understood the glory of living with a God where nothing was impossible and so she takes that before him remember one of the first times it just really hit me I was the youth pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Madison, Mississippi when I was Um, in seminary and uh, i had planned my first youth event I, i wasn't uh trusted i guess at church yet they didn't give me a key and so i had planned this event at the facility i show up at the facility and it's locked okay and so i'm calling everybody i know to has a key all of the elders of the church to open the church and everybody i call it's busy it's busy it's busy it's like Plan all this—it's gonna fail. And my, one of my friends showed up. I think it was one, maybe one of the youth in the group, and showed up and said, um, "I said I can't get in. I'm sorry. Uh, everybody's busy." He says, "You believe in Jesus, right?" And I said, "Yeah." He says, "Just pray." And he prayed, "Lord, I forget which elder it was. It, Lord, let the elder answer the phone this time." He took the phone, called it, rang. Think, done. It's like. I call that number 10 times. Why did, he, why did it answer for him? He believed Jesus would handle this right then. He didn't make a big deal about it. He just said, Jesus, we need the phone to ring. And it did. Do you live like that? If you do, then you've got some idea of the glory of living with Christ. That he is the God who provides supernatural, impossible assistance. Second, I want you to see in this passage, just the glory of Christ's fellowship. He is, has been invited, but he comes. He's there. He likes being with his disciples. He likes being with his people. He likes being with his mom. There's no indication he doesn't. He likes being there. He likes the party. He likes eating and drinking with those he's seeking to reach. He's fun to be with. Those who knew him loved being with him. If you consider the glory of that, it's not fun doing life alone. And in Christ, we have someone who loves being with us. It's not distasteful for him to spend time with you. He enjoys your company. He enjoys helping you with your problems, yes. But he just enjoys hanging out. He enjoys being with everyone here in this place. Jesus is fun to be with. He's certainly committed to, to moderation, to temperance. But he's also committed to the party. He's committed to the time together. To let's, let's go to the wedding. Let's drink let's eat, let's let's have fun, let's celebrate. So much of scripture, Old Testament, has these feasts and these celebrations, and we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. It's, it's a remembrance that we have a, a God who enjoys food and drink and a celebration, a time together. We see the glory of that, how he doesn't abandon us or leave us aside. He's He's one that that wants to spend time with us. Um, He wants our joy. John says later on in the book, he says, he wants our joy to be full, to be complete. And many times we don't choose joy. We get up grumpy and we stay grumpy instead of choosing a fellowship that will fill us with joy. Third, think about the glory of Christ's generosity. I mean, I've already indicated one, one glass for a lot of people would be a plenty, right? Especially if it's one of those 16-ounce red Solo cups, right? I, I don't know how big the glass was back in that day. I don't, And even if I did, I don't know that that's the one they used. I don't know how much wine they started with. But I can assume, because we've done enough weddings that we always plan that everybody gets at least one of everything. And then you, you know, factor up how many teenagers are going to be there because they're going to get three of everything. How many women are there? A lot of times they'll only get half of everything. You, know, you, you do all the math. And you factor in how many supplies you need. Well, somebody had done that, and then they ran out. And they didn't have enough wine. And Jesus says, well, fill those pots up. So he gets 180 gallons. Let's let's assume there's eight ounces in a glass. And that's pretty generous. I mean, have you ever been to the restaurant and you got to say, well, I'll order a glass of wine. And you spend ten bucks on this glass and you get that much. You know, it's like, what? Come on, guys. That's. That's not eight ounces. You know, we're talking two or three. Or They say, well, three ounces is what we normally give. Oh, okay. Let's say it's eight ounces. That's generous already. There's, what, 128 ounces in a gallon? So 16 glasses at eight ounces in a gallon. We're up to 2,880 glasses. Nearly 3,000 glasses of wine. To me, that just sounds a little lavish, doesn't it? I mean, even if there were 1,500 guests, they could all have two more apiece. It just seems like a generous amount. And as I think about Christ, is he not that way? When he turned the bread and loaves into enough to feed thousands Did he not always have food left over? There just is this generous nature that's consistent with all Christ does. Glory in his generosity. How many in this room only have enough? See, God has been so generous with us. And he gives, he says, press down and running over. Compared to what we give to him, glory in Christ. He doesn't skimp when it comes to meeting our needs. And he's already told us. He says, when you get to heaven, I'm going to blow your mind. You're going to see and experience what you can't even imagine. It's the glory of Christ, his generous way of doing things. And then a fourth thing that comes out of the text is just the glory of his humility he's not the kind of preacher most people want he's not showy he doesn't give any thought to appearances i mean he could have made this theatrical he could have made it a big deal but when he turns all of this water into wine nobody even seems to know who did it it's like he, he gave no thought to the appearance, his appearance, who was watching. It's like he does it all out back with the servants. He says the, the servants knew, but even the head waiter didn't know. So I don't know where you got this stuff, but it's good stuff. And isn't that Christ's way? That it's, he is willing to even Be stripped and beaten and crucified. What humility! That he doesn't mind doing the servant's work, he doesn't mind doing it out back, he doesn't mind not putting on a show. He wants to help, and he does it in the humblest and the most beautiful ways. And the deepest and richest ways he gives himself to us. The glory of a humble servant. He humbled himself even to the obedience of death on a cross. What do you know about the wedding of Cana? I know a lot more now about the glory of Christ that comes through the wedding of Cana. I know that at that wedding there was a supernatural man named Jesus that could do the impossible as though it were nothing. I know now that he was fun to be with and he hung out with servants He responded to wedding requests. He ate with us. He drank with us. The fellowship was sweet. It was deep. It was real. I know he was generous. Whatever I needed, he could provide in lavish amounts. And I know he didn't make it so much about him, though he was the most glorious one there. But he made it about a ministry to sinners like you and me the glory of Christ is manifested as we turn to the lord's supper this morning one passage that I struggle with a little bit in in the whole wine and bread issue is this one Matthew 26 26 While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, he gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup, he gave given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. There's two commands there. Take, eat, well, several commands there, and then another, drink, three commands, all of you. Like, wait i thought alcohol was optional there seems to be a place where god says it's optional for you to take this meal or not if you're not one of god's people you shouldn't be taking it because it's it's not for you this is a family meal this is for the family of god we take it in remembrance of what christ has done for us he's taken our sins he's saved us from sin and he's adopted us as his children into his family, making it a family meal. So he says, if you are part of the family, then it becomes not non-optional. I need you to take and eat. I need you to drink. Because I need you to remember my glory. I need you to always know I am the one. Who's given his life for you. I didn't just purchase a half a ticket. I didn't just get you part way. I've purchased a whole ticket for you. I've paid for all of your sins. I've made you completely righteous. I've died on a cross. I've satisfied the wrath of God. I need you to take and eat of that, and drink of that, and experience the glory of a savior. And I need to be so intimate with you, just like this bread and drink, that I'm inside of you, and you and me, so that no one can ever get us apart. We need that kind of fellowship together, and that kind of fellowship is not optional, which is why if you eat and take it, You are proclaiming, He is mine. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's the glorious one who's done it all for me. So see as you take this morning, and and I would encourage you, try to take some time today or this week and say, Lord, let me just meditate upon your glory. How would you write the essay now? want to I want to I, I want more depth into the glory of his supernatural assistance more depth into the the glory of his fellowship how do you and Christ hang out and fellowship together how do you eat and drink with his blessing I want you to think more and meditate on the glory of his generosity And you will live with much greater gratefulness in all that you do. And I want you to to, to really focus on the glory of his humility. Let's pray together. Father, uh, use this bread and this wine this morning to keep us focused on the glory of Christ, our Lord, our Savior. There is none other, none compares, Let us know